Well, great to be here again this morning. Um, yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Lauren, for preaching last week. Really appreciate that. Some um, good job in that in that difficult passage. Really helpful and applicable. Um, but but now it's my turn again. So great to be back with you guys. Uh, I want to start with asking a question this morning. What is man's greatest need? What is man's greatest need? You know, if you think about that, we, we might say, well, we need food and, and shelter, and, and we do, but that only covers our temporal needs. Maybe we should ask it, it this way, what is, what is sinful man's greatest need? And when we frame it that way, we can, we can see our great problem. Our problem is sin. And the solution must answer the problem. Sin is a problem because it separates us from God. Sin is a problem because it brings us under condemnation from God. And so sin robs us then of our greatest good, which is God Himself. Knowing Him and fellowship with Him, that's our greatest good. And sin brings upon us then the greatest harm. It condemns us. It condemns us to hell. The worst thing that could ever happen to us is for us to pay the eternal penalty for our sin. And so whatever removes us from the greatest good and puts us into the greatest harm, I would argue that that is our greatest problem. Whatever removes us from the greatest good and puts us into the greatest harm, that's our problem. And our greatest need then must be the thing that deals with our greatest problem. Man's greatest need is for him to be reconciled to God. Man's greatest need is for God's wrath to be removed from us. And that means that man's greatest need, our greatest need, is to have our sins forgiven. And that's the case whether we recognize it or not. Whether we recognize that, that that's our greatest need or not, that is our greatest need. And the question then is, does, is forgiveness of sins possible? Is the forgiveness of sins even possible? And, and I know even as I, as I frame that question, our, our contemporary society would say, well, you don't need to trouble yourself with such things. You know, the world tells us that there, there's no sin. The Word tells us that we're, we're basically good. Sure, sure they, they say, you know, you, you aren't perfect, but, but neither are you punishable. The world says there's nothing to worry about. You won't surely die. Maybe you recognize where that came from. But any student of the Bible knows that they have sinned against a holy God and that that God, our God, the God of the, the creator of the universe, can have no fellowship with darkness. Even our own consciences testify against us that we are guilty. Well then, the world says, sure, you, you have sinned, but, but God's merciful. He'll forgive you. He'll, he'll overlook it. There's no need to worry about it now. You know, the world thinks that forgiveness is a, a very little thing, a, an easy thing. The world would hardly think to ask, is forgiveness possible? 
The world thinks so lightly of forgiveness because they think so lightly of sin. They think forgiveness is easy because they think little of the holiness and justice of God. God is merciful, but He's also just. He's also righteous. And it's not righteous to ignore sin. You know, if somebody punched you in the face and stole your wallet and insulted your mother, I dare say most of you would want justice served. Or or maybe you can think of your own better illustration. But there's times where we want justice to be served. God says in Hebrews 10.30, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. But God doesn't only repay. He doesn't merely do justice. God is just. It's His very nature to be just and righteous and holy. And when men are hostile against Him with wicked works, it's a a personal assault on God. Our sin is a personal offense to a holy God. And for God to simply ignore that offense would require Him to deny Himself. It's easier for God to cease being God than it is for Him to ignore men's sins. Again, to to sweep sin under some kind of giant cosmic rug would be for God to deny Himself. And because of that, forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is difficult. For God to be God and to forgive sins. For God to be just and the justifier, He had to have His own Son take on a human nature and pay the penalty for our sins. God remained just because the sins were paid for, and God could be merciful because the debt was paid. And so forgiveness is possible, but forgiveness came at a great cost. Forgiveness is our greatest need, and it's possible because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. Now, early in our study of Matthew, and we can maybe turn to, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, but earlier in our, our study of Matthew, we heard the angel tell Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, she, that is Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus would save people from sin. But so far in our study of Matthew, we haven't seen it yet. Jesus has called disciples to Himself. He has preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He implied that there would be forgiveness of sins when He said on the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 6, verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. But so far in our study of Matthew, we haven't seen anybody forgiven of their sins. Now we're in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8 this morning. And this text is a a part of a larger section of Matthew 8 to, to the end of chapter 9, Matthew 8 and 9. And this larger section deals with the authority 
of Jesus. Remember the, the Sermon on the Mount ended in 728, and, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so Jesus' teaching was authoritative. The sermon showed the authority of Jesus' teaching, and now Matthew 8 and 9 show the authority of Jesus over sickness, over disease, over nature, over demons. And now in our text, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over sin and over the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, something that only God can do. And that's really the point in all this. Jesus has the authority of God. Jesus has the authority of God. This, this shows then that Jesus has the authority to meet our greatest need. Our sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Let's read our text here this morning. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise and rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. We're going to divide this text just kind of a, around six major events in the text. We're going to see, first of all, faith in verses 1 and 2, forgiveness in the, the second half of verse 2, false charges in verse 3, response in verse 4 and 5, proof in verse 6 and 7, and then we'll see fear in verse 8. So just kind of a, a simple little outline that just kind of goes through the text here, but let's look at First of all, then, we see faith in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. We meet here a paralytic and his friends. Jesus has just come back to Capernaum from casting demons out of two men. Remember, the, the people of Gadara asked him to leave their region. And then in verse 1, getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. His own city, according to Matthew 4 and verse 13, is Capernaum. And so Jesus is back in Capernaum. And I should note that, that nothing in Matthew says or, or, or prevents a period of time between verse 1 and verse 2. Remember, as I've said multiple times, Matthew isn't necessarily chronological here. He's just kind of gathering together events that prove the authority of Jesus. In fact, some commentators believe that, that this story isn't chronologically placed in any of the Gospels. And so Matthew's just kind of taken a, a number of miracle stories showing Jesus' authority, spanning the, the years of his ministry, and he's brought them together and kind of put them together in a, in a, um, 
in a in a theological fashion or or in a in a topical fashion just to kind of show us the authority of Jesus. Matthew has also once again he's given us the shortest version of this story. You probably remember this from Mark or Luke where the the man was lowered to Jesus through the roof. Mark chapter 2 and and why don't we just go there? Let's just turn to Mark chapter 2 for a moment. Mark chapter 2 says, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now all Matthew says, really for all of what we read, is just what he says in verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, and we'll just kind of stop there again. That's that's verse 2 of Matthew. The ESV there adds the word some people to kind of smooth it out, but it's literally just they brought to him. They, is, is Mark tells us, is four people, and they, they brought this paralytic to Jesus. He was likely totally unable to walk, and so he had to be carried on a bed. And this bed would have been kind of something like one of our stretchers. It would have been some kind of a, a mat material with, with some kind of a bit of a, a frame material that they could kind of carry with some handles or something like that. They didn't have wheelchairs in those days. And, and these four men then bring the paralyzed man to Jesus and Jesus sees their faith. Now they haven't, at least as far as we know, they haven't asked for anything. In all the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of these men, none of these people, not the paralytic or his friends, none of them say anything. It seems they've come for healing, though. Jesus has healed many people in Capernaum, and the word of, of his, his miraculous healings has kind of spread through the area. In fact, earlier we saw that he healed really all the people in the area that, that had come to him. And so now these guys know that, that he can heal and they bring their friend or maybe their family, they, they bring this paralytic man to Jesus. Now, so far as we know, at least in, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, up to this point, Jesus has not forgiven anyone since. And so they brought this paralytic and Jesus sees their faith and it's their faith, most likely that includes the four as well as the faith of the paralytic himself. And Jesus sees their faith. Now, faith is trust. These people, they, they believe something. What do they believe? Well, I think if we kind of break it down, I think they believe at least this much. And I think this gets to the essence of all true faith. And so this is important here. What do they believe? They believe that, that they cannot heal the paralysis on their own. And so they believe that they've got a problem that they cannot solve. 
And they believe that Jesus is able to heal. They believe that Jesus can solve the problem. And so they, they know they've got a problem and they believe that Jesus can. Jesus is able. And they believe if they could, they could get their friend or the, if, or the paralytic, he, he believes that if he could get himself to Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. And so they believe that Jesus will. And believing, they seek Jesus at whatever cost, even, even getting up on the roof and lowering the man down. And so that's their faith. They, they recognize the problem. They, they recognize that Jesus has the ability to heal it. And they recognize that Jesus has the compassion and the willingness to meet that problem. That's their faith. They have a problem that only Jesus is able to fix. And they believe that he is able and willing to fix it. And so they seek Jesus for the solution. They believe Jesus had the authority to act and they believed that Jesus had the compassion to act. And they came to Jesus that day, it would seem they came for healing. Jesus' ministry again was one of teaching, preaching, and healing. Jesus' ministry was designed to highlight who he was and he healed in order to show that he was God in human flesh, but he, he came for a much greater purpose than merely healing. He came to lay down his life as an offering for sin. And so seeing their faith, he, he gives the paralytic, at least initially, he gives him something better than he came for. And this is number two then in our outline. We've seen faith. Now let's see number two, forgiveness. Forgiveness in verse two. Second part of verse 2 reads, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So the first thing Jesus says is take heart, take courage, be encouraged is the idea. He calls him my son or my child. And he welcomes him. He, He welcomes those who come to him. Jesus always welcomes those who come to him. And he encourages them, take heart, my son, take heart, my child. Be encouraged. Jesus never turned anyone away who is willing to come to him. He, unless they were unwilling to follow, he always welcomed them with open arms. No matter what their sin, no matter what their situation, no matter what their life, Jesus welcomed sinners. This is the kind of gracious response that you can expect from Jesus if you come to him with your problems. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my child. This paralytic is coming to Jesus, sins and all, but Jesus welcomes him. Now the ancient world saw a closer connection between sin and sickness than, than we typically do today. Remember when the, the disciples saw a man that was blind from birth in John chapter 9? They asked in verse 2, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the, the, that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the disciples assumed, like, like much of the ancient world would have, that if, if it, that someone must have sinned. And we know that, that sin and, and, that, sorry, we know that sickness and, and death did come into the world through sin. Adam sinned and it spread to all men, bringing sickness and suffering into the world. 
And we know as well that sometimes there is a direct connection between sin and sickness. Remember, Paul told the Corinthians, this is 1 Corinthians 11.27, whoever therefore eats, sorry, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so the Corinthians were disciplined by the Lord for eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Their sickness and weakness was directly tied to their sin. Verse 30 again, Paul says, that is why, what's that, what is why? Because they were, they were doing this in an unworthy manner. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So sometimes there's a direct connection between sin and sickness. The, the blind man, on the other hand, his sickness was just indirectly tied to sin. Now, we aren't told if the paralysis, if, if the per- paralytic sickness was somehow tied to his sin or not. All we know is that Jesus first dealt with the man's sins. And again, to this point, Jesus had healed lots of people, and he had done it without mentioning their sins, without dealing with their sins, without forgiving their sins, so far as we know. But for whatever reason, Jesus goes first to the forgiveness of sins. Again, he said in verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Like every one of us, this man had sins. He had sinned. He had broken God's law and he had earned God's displeasure. But Jesus forgave his sins. This forgiveness would have been on the, the basis of Jesus' future death on the cross. The penalty hadn't been paid yet, but God knew that Jesus came and that he would succeed in the mission for which he came. And all the Old Testament saints were forgiven on the same basis. They were forgiven on the basis of a sacrifice that was still future in their day. But what's important for us really is is this. Jesus forgave this man's sins and he pronounced them forgiven. At the root, the the word translated are forgiven means to be sent away. And that word was used to dismiss someone or something, to send them away or to release them. It was used to release uh, from legal or moral obligations or consequences, to pardon a convicted criminal or to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus is telling this man that the debt of his sins is no more. The penalty for his offenses against God have been canceled. What a glorious release forgiveness of sins is. The the unpayable debt completely forgiven. The penalty of sin, that burden of guilt removed completely. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The forgiveness of our sins is a rich blessing of God's grace. And this grace is available exclusively in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him, and that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And so this man was forgiven of his sins according to the riches of God's grace, according to the sacrifice of Christ. But the scribes weren't happy about it and they began to grumble to themselves about what Jesus said. And this is number three, false charges in verse three. False charges. And behold, some of the scribes said to him, this man is blaspheming. This man is blaspheming. It could be here that the scribes were were talking among themselves or that they were they were they were merely saying this in their heart. Mark tells us a little bit more Mark 2:6 again. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? So Mark's showing us this is in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? All the Gospel accounts say that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts. Now whether this was by the power of the Holy Spirit or whether this was by His own divine omniscience, but he, whatever, whatever way this was happening, Jesus knew what these people were thinking. They were thinking that Jesus was blaspheming. To blaspheme means to speak evil or to revile, to slander, malign. It can be used to refer to men or to, to revile, slander, and malign men. Or it can be used of God, and more often it's used that way to refer to God. And here, by claiming to do what only God can do, the scribes think that Jesus is speaking disrespectfully about God. And the logic of their thinking is good. It goes something like this. If, if you, a mere man, claim to do what only God can do, then you're bringing God down to your level. Or you're bringing yourself up to God's level. And either way, it would be blasphemy, except that Jesus is not a mere man. And that's where their charge falls short. They failed to recognize Jesus for who He was. Now, this is the first sign of opposition against Christ uh, in this gospel. Unless we count the early opposition that Herod, when, when Herod tried to kill Jesus and he killed all the children in that area. But this is really the first opposition against, the, against Christ the, the man, against the ministry of Jesus Christ. And from here on in this gospel, we're going to see increasing hostility from the scribes and Pharisees. These thoughts that Jesus was blaspheming, these charges were false charges because Jesus as God had the authority to forgive sins. And in a moment, we're going to provide proof. We're going to see the proof. But first, he responds to the scribes in verse 4 and 5. And so look at what the what it says there. Look what Jesus says, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now think about this with me here. Jesus could have said, whoa, whoa, guys, guys, I'm, I'm not saying I forgave the man's sins. I'm just saying that I know God forgave them, right? He could have said something along those lines. For example, Nathan had told David that God had put away his sins in 2 Samuel 12, 13. 
But what Jesus is doing here is different. He's claiming the authority to forgive sins himself. And when the scribes begin thinking that, that, that claiming that authority is blasphemy, Jesus goes on to push the point. And he proves that he can and does forgive sins. Now first, even as we think about this, first note that, that Jesus says that, that he knows their thoughts. Knowing their thoughts. This, this seems to point beyond just, just reading their body language or, or some merely human way of recognizing what they were, what they were thinking. God alone can read the heart. First Kings 8.39 says, Solomon says to Yahweh, he's praying here and he says, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. According to all his ways, For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God is the one who knows the heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus said to them, God knows your hearts. And so God and God alone knows the heart, but Jesus at times through the Gospels knows men's hearts. He reads men's hearts. He knows their thoughts. And so He shows Himself to be God by reading their hearts. And then secondly, He calls the the thought that He is blaspheming, He calls that thought evil. He says, why do you think evil in your heart, so he knows their hearts, and then he says, "What's what's happening in your hearts? The thinking in your hearts is evil." And so, if we think about that, to think that Jesus is is claiming wrongly to do what only God can do is evil. Or let me try to say it like this: It is evil to think Jesus did not have the right to do what only God can do. Or to put it positively, it's, it's good to acknowledge that Jesus has the right to forgive sin. Again, negatively, rejecting the deity of Christ is evil. That's an evil thought to believe that He doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus doesn't just say it's evil. He asks them though, why? Why do you think evil? He asked them that they might search their own hearts. Why do you think less of Christ than you ought to? And then he asked the second question in verse 5, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now it's important to note here that, that he says which is easier to say, not which is easier to do. Anyone can say, your sins are forgiven. And for that matter, anyone could say, rise and walk, right? Any, it, it's easy to say. If anyone says your sins are forgiven, though, there's, there's no way to tell if, it, if it's happened. There's no way to tell if it works. You can't see if someone's sins are forgiven. But if someone says, rise and walk, you will immediately know if what they say is backed by the authority to do it. And of course, when it comes to doing one of these healing, uh, one of these, the, the healing of a paralytic is actually easier, if, uh, I guess. You know, it's it's easier than the the everything that's involved in removing someone's sins. But 
But Jesus says, which is easier to say? And now he's going to go on and he's going to give proof that he has the authority to forgive sins. And so number five then, we'll see the proof in verses six and seven. The proof. Look at verse six. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Here is Jesus' proof that he has the authority to forgive sins. He provides the, the, he, he, sorry, he proves the unverifiable miracle of the forgiveness of sins by the verifiable miracle of restoring a paralytic to full health. He tells him who could not rise to rise, and he did. It's an amazing miracle if you think about it, right? This man is paralyzed, and depending on how long the man was paralyzed, his muscles would have been quite small. And to see them fully restored would have been so neat to see. If you've ever seen a, a man who's been in a wheelchair for a number of years, they often have very, very small, very skinny legs. And just to see the, 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 the muscle restored to those legs and to see this guy get up and walk, and I'm sure there would have been some rejoicing and joy in the house, and, and the crowd would have been marveling at this. Now, so this is an amazing miracle and it it proves that Jesus has the authority not only to heal, but also to forgive sins. Now, this is the the second time that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And I just want to look at this a little bit, this, this title here, the Son of Man. It points both to his deity and to his humanity. For example, as far as his humanity, Ezekiel was called son of man. God called Ezekiel often son of man, and Ezekiel was a man. But Daniel chapter 7 says this, this is Daniel 7.13. Daniel speaking here, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, Of course, the Ancient of Days is Yahweh is God here. And so there's this one like a son of man. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. He's he's standing before the Ancient of Days. He's standing before God the Father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so this one, like a son of man, he comes from heaven, not from earth. And this picture then corresponds to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. This is Daniel 2.44. It says, In those days, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And so you can kind of see the, the parallels of, of these passages. There's going to be a kingdom that's going to come that's going to, that's going to destroy the other kingdoms. This kingdom comes from uh, no human place. It comes from a, a stone that's cut without hands. And it destroys the other kingdoms of the earth and it's going to then be established forever. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's, he's kind of taking both from Ezekiel and from Daniel. 
And he's, he's using it, it's almost like an undercover title. The, 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 the Jewish people at the time didn't recognize Son of Man as a, as a messianic title. And they, did, they didn't recognize that until much later in Jesus' ministry. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, it, some people just kind of thought, okay, well, he's saying he's a man. Or, or, you know, it's kind of a weird way to call yourself a man, but whatever. Uh, but, but later on, as Jesus' ministry goes on, they start to recognize he's calling himself the Son of Man in the Daniel 7 sense, this one who comes on the clouds of heaven. And so, for example, Matthew 26 63, this is the, the trial of Jesus, and in, in verse 63 it says, But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And so when Jesus says, Son of Man, and he ties it with his coming on the clouds of heaven, that's when they realize that he is indeed claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But before that, it seems like most people didn't recognize this title, Son of Man, as a messianic title. But Jesus knew that he was the Son of Man, and he knew that he was both God and man, one person, two natures, and both are represented by that title. And as the Son of Man, look at our text there, it says the, the Son of Man on earth. As the Son of Man on earth, not now coming on the clouds of heaven, but on earth, He has the authority to forgive sins. And He proved that authority by healing the paralytic. Now we don't know from the text how the scribes responded. Matthew doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that from this point on, there's increasing hostility against Jesus and against His ministry. Matthew 9.33 says, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, another healing scene. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this scene in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And by Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees are conspiring against him how to destroy him. I believe that's Matthew 12.13. But at this point, the crowds are, are still supportive and, and that's going to be our final point. Look at, look at verse eight of the text. We see number six. We see fear. Fear in verse eight. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so the crowds feared. You know, there's something fearful about being in the presence of majesty. Jesus forgave sins and he restored a paralytic so that he could walk perfectly normally. And the crowds recognized the power of God and the authority of God that was there in that moment and they feared. Maybe even partly because the mention of the, the sins forgiven makes one think about one's own sins. And so they feared and they, they marveled and they glorified God. They praised him and they honored him for what they saw that day. 
But the crowds really didn't seem to understand what was really going on. They feared and they glorified God, but they didn't understand who Jesus was. They looked at Jesus and and all they saw was a man. And they didn't get that he was saying that he was also God. He was God and man, but all they saw was a man who had somehow been given great authority. And again, the text says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And they don't mean men in general. They, they seem to mean this man that's standing before them, this Jesus had, God has given him some authority, but they don't understand who he is. They didn't recognize what I hope that we do. And I think what, what Matthew wants his readers to see is that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is God in human flesh. That he is the one who has come to save his people from their sins by laying down his life for sinners. Friends, if you would have your sins forgiven, even today, it starts right here with knowing Christ. He is God and man. He was God and He took on a human nature to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sins. He died on the cross and rose from the dead. He was resurrected. And He's now at the right hand of God the Father awaiting the soon coming of His return on the clouds of heaven. He has the authority. This Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. He is compassionate towards sinners. And when we know Christ, we're encouraged to come to Him. When we know who He is, we, we want to come to Him. Much like the paralytic came and was forgiven, we too are called to come to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to believe what the Scriptures say about our sin. That we are sinners. That we are guilty before God. We need to believe that Jesus can forgive our sins. And we need to believe that Jesus will forgive our sins. From our passage, we can clearly see that, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus can forgive our sins. But will He forgive our sins? Well, let's consider Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The message of the gospel is repent and believe on Christ. Come to him and he will forgive your sins. That's the gospel. He will forgive your sins if you come to him in truth. If you turn away from your wickedness, if you forsake your way, if you forsake your your unrighteous thoughts and return to the Lord, he will have compassion on you and he will abundantly pardon even Jesus himself says in John 6:37, "Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out." And so I invite you to come to Christ. If you haven't come to Christ already, come to Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. And for those of us who have come to him, isn't it sweet to remember that our sins are forgiven? Isn't it a wonderful blessing to know that all of our sin and guilt has been forgiven by the Lord? Isn't it sweet to to think on the Lord Jesus Christ who forgave our sins and paid the eternal penalty for us? What a joy to realize that we have come to so good a Savior, one who forgives all our iniquities and makes us righteous 
in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You for our time together in Your Word, and we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who can forgive our sins, who will forgive our sins, who promises to forgive our sins. We thank You that You have invited us to come to Him, and we pray for those who haven't come to Him that You would draw them to Yourself. Father, we thank You for the forgiveness of sins, for the release of our guilt, and for the fact that Your Son makes us righteous in Your sight so that we can be in Your presence. We thank You, Father, that that Your mercy is greater than all of our sins. And we pray that You'd help us to sing about it and to rejoice in that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.